VCY America presents Crosstalk, a nationwide call-in program discussing issues that have an effect on our families, our communities, our churches, our nation, and our world. Crosstalk, an opportunity for you to voice your concerns for biblical principles. And now live by satellite and around the world on the Internet at vcyamerica.org. Here is today's Crosstalk. And thank you for joining us on Crosstalk here on VCY America. Uh, Thanksgiving is a time we look forward to year after year. I mean, it's a special day set aside to give God thanks. But through the years, there's been a, a distortion of what brought about this national day and what were the circumstances that even brought the pilgrims coming to this land, to the new world. For instance, did you know that there was a persecution going on of the pilgrims? Did you know that the pilgrims first fled to Holland? Did you know what role that Samoset and Squanto had with the pilgrims? Did you know of the 102 pilgrims that landed on the shores of Massachusetts in November of 1620 that only half survived till spring? Did you know that the pilgrims actually tried communism and rejected it? Well, our guest today is going to unfold that pilgrim adventure and take us to that first Thanksgiving as well. Joining us today, we welcome back William J. Federer. Bill is a nationally known speaker, historian, author, president of AmeriSearch, a speaker in the American Minute broadcast, authored numerous books like America's God and Country, Encyclopedia of Quotations, Who is the King uh, in America, Socialism, The Real History from Plato to Present, and numerous other titles as well. And uh, Bill, welcome back here to Crosstalk. Jim, great to be with you. Bill, if we could, let's first define who are the pilgrims, and then let's look at the times in which they lived. Well, the background is that uh, the most common form of government in world history is kings. They keep getting bigger until finally the king of England was the biggest. And, uh, and so the uh, king of England broke from the Church of Rome, and he made himself the head of the church in England. So his name is Henry VIII, and uh, he... Uh, insisted that everybody believe the way he wanted them to believe. And so the king is the head of the Anglican Church. A group starts that wants to purify the church. They're nicknamed Puritans. And then there's another group splitting off, and they call themselves separatists or Baptists or Congregationalists or, you know, about 60 years later, Quakers. And so the situation was, uh, Henry was married to the daughter of the King of Spain. Her name was Catherine of Aragon. And after 18 years, she did, did not have a son, a daughter Mary, but not a son. And so he decides to divorce her. The Pope won't recognize the divorce, so Henry makes himself his own Pope. His advisors tell him if he's serious about breaking from Rome, he needs, he needs to stop using that Latin Bible. He needs to get himself an English Bible. The German princes have Martin Luther's German Bible that helped them to break away. He needs an English Bible. So Henry says, fine, get me one. It just so happens a few years earlier, Henry had William Tyndall burnt at the stake for translating the Bible into English. Hmm. William Tyndall's last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Yeah. And now the king wants an English Bible, so they actually take Tyndall's work, polish it up, and they call it the Great Bible. They put it in every church in England, and Henry dusts his hands and says, that's it, we've broken from Rome. But what he thought was going to be the end of it was the beginning of it. So you had the Puritans wanting to purify the church and then these separatists branching off. Uh, the king's attitude was, yes, you can read the Bible in your, in your own language, but no, you still can't believe whatever you want. You have to believe what I tell you to believe. And so you do not make up prayers because you could make up a prayer that's wrong. So the government wrote all the possible prayers down in a book. It's called the Book of Common Prayer. And when you feel like praying, you just open it to the right page and read the prayer. And if you're caught with a small group and you're having a Bible study and you're making up your own prayers, lo and behold, the, the government will send its police like the FBI to your house and they'll kick in the door and they'll arrest you and they'll drag you away to a, a, a hearing room. It's called the Star Chamber. And it's because it had stars on the ceiling and it's sort of like a January 6th hearing room, right, where they uh, do it in secret and they intimidate you and they get you to confess the stuff you didn't do. And, and they would you twist your arm and brand you on the face as a heretic and even cut off your ear. And then they would stick you in a cell and let you waste away for days, weeks, months, years. Mm. Could you imagine the government doing that to its own citizens? And then they passed the Five Mile Act. If you were caught preaching within five miles of a town, 
uh, without getting approval of the government, you're a criminal. And they drag you before that star chamber. And this was the setting. Somebody that was having a Bible study and he was arrested was John Bunyan. He spent 12 years in prison, and that's when he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. So this is what's going on in England. And now I like to zoom in and zoom out. And so one of the zooming out is what's going on in the rest of the world. Well, we have the Muslims uh, surrounding Vienna in um, 1529. And then in 1571, you have the Muslim Sultan Suleiman the, the Magnificent take, wanting to take over Western Mediterranean Sea. He already controls the Eastern Mediterranean, right? North Africa, Greece, Turkey, and now he wants the Western. And it's a big battle called the Battle of Lepanto. And the, uh, the Spanish are the ones stopping this Muslim sultan. And they win and in October of 1571. But, but rather than going around the Mediterranean and freeing up these other cities from Islamic control, the king of Spain, it's Philip II, he decides to send his army into Holland and England to smash the Reformation. And so he sends the Iron Duke of Alba into Holland, and he called the Spanish Furies, and he butchers tens of thousands in Antwerp, Holland, just leave piles of bodies in the streets. And then in 1588, he sends his invincible Spanish Armada Navy to crush the Reformation in England, and it was destroyed in a hurricane. And so we've talked about England, we've talked about Spain, let's talk about France. And so France as a queen, Catherine de Medici. So the Medicis were a wealthy family from Florence that married their kids to all the different monarchs of Europe. And so Catherine de Medici is the queen of France. Her husband dies, and she rules France through her young son and marries him to Mary Queen of Scots. And when he's around 14 and she's 13, um, he dies. And rather than make this young girl the queen, she puts Mary Queen of Scots on a you know, boat and sends her back to, to Scotland. And then she rules in the name of another son. And then Catherine de Medici decides to have a wedding and marry her daughter, Margaret, to Henry of Navarre, who is the main leading Protestant leader. There's about 15% of France is French Protestants. They're called Huguenots or Huguenots. And uh, so the wedding takes place, and a couple of days later is St. Bartholomew's Day. Well, Catherine de' Medici decided to have them pull the chains across all the streets in Paris where the carriages can't go out of the city. And then she sends her army uh, house by house, and they kill 30,000 Protestants and wow. throw their bodies in the Seine River. The river's red with blood. And so the attitude up to this point was obey the king. Obey the king's mandates. Uh, you know, Romans 13, submit. And, but there's a, a guy in Switzerland named John Calvin. Switzerland has uh, four different languages, French, <laughs> German, Italian, and then another Swiss language. But, but John Calvin uh, speaks French. And here in France, she, you just witnessed the, the monarchs killing people. And so his attitude was, okay, we're supposed to submit to the monarch, but what do you do when the monarch flat out wants to kill you? And so John Calvin writes this, when kings disobey God, they automatically abdicate their worldly power. In his institutes, John Calvin writes, he who does not make his reign subservient to divine glory acts the part not of a king, but a robber. We are subject to the men who rule over us, but subject only in the Lord. If they command anything against him, the Lord, let us not pay the least regard to it. It's this attitude that children obey your parents, but what if the parent tells the kid to go out and sell themselves into prostitution and kill a neighbor and sell drugs? Is the kid supposed to obey that? No, no, the kid obeys the parent as long as the parent's obeying God. Mm -hmm. And so this began these Calvinist Protestants saying, okay, let's come up with a government without a king. And they began to look into the scriptures for examples, and the first 400 years out of Egypt Israel did not have a king, around 1400 B.C. to 1000 B.C. And so these Calvinist Puritan scholars studied this, and it's called the Hebrew Republic. 
And the scholars, even though they were Christian, they were nicknamed Christian Hebraists because they just really got into studying this. And it made such a difference. I mean, that's why they taught Hebrew at Yale and Harvard, because they're studying how the Hebrews had a government without a king. And so, lo and behold, the king of England looked to the Bible for his authority, but he looked to the King Saul and on period of the Bible, where these Calvinist Puritans looked to the pre-King Saul period, that 400 years out of Egypt, where they didn't have a king, right? So it's the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, and then Samuel all the way up until Saul gets uh, made king. And so that's the deciding point, is Saul. Calvinist Puritans are pre-King Saul. King of England is post-King Saul. And um, so the king didn't like these Calvinist Puritans and decides to persecute them. And uh, King James said, I will make them them conform themselves or else I will harry them out of the land. And so we have these different groups. Uh, Now, once you're breaking away from the king and the king's the head of the Anglican church, you have other different church models being explored. The Presbyterians, the word presbyter means elder. And so they would have a meeting of the elders and it was called a synod. So the word synod means meeting. The word synagogue means meeting place. And so you would have these elders meeting. And then you had the Baptists that had completely independent congregations. And their attitude was the church was made up of people drawn by the Holy Spirit to congregate together. And they were completely independent with no bishops. And then you had about 60 years later, the Quakers. And they didn't have elders and didn't have pastors. They were just a society of friends, just a bunch of Christian friends that get together and they would sit in a circle and, and wait for someone to be moved upon by the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, But they did champion equality and they did champion uh, anti-slavery movements, the Quakers did, and, and it worked for them. And But back to these uh, independent uh, congregations, these Baptists, the founders of the Baptist faith in England were three men, John Smith, S-M-Y-T-H, not the John Smith with the Pocahontas, this is a different one, a John Merton and a Thomas Hellwise, and the king didn't like them. And so John Merton was arrested and put in the Newgate prison where he eventually died. And they don't give you any food in the prison. You have to have some friend that misses you and brings you food. So he had a friend bring him a bottle of milk, but instead of a cork, it had a wad of paper. And when the guard wasn't around, he unfolded the paper, took a splinter, dipped it in milk, and he wrote out his pamphlets. It dries. It's clear. He folds it up, puts it in the empty bottle. Guard takes it. His friend takes it home, unfolds the paper, and holds it just high enough above a candle so the heat turns the milk brown. And they could read what he wrote, and they typeset the little pamphlets, and they print them. And so the early Baptists called called it the milk of the word. And uh, one of the things he wrote was, no man ought to be persecuted for his religion. Hmm. We're going to take a quick break here. William J. Federer with us today and uh, talking about Thanksgiving and the Pilgrim Adventure. And we've taken the wide view as to what was going on in the world and now going back into that focus to the pilgrims. And uh, they're fleeing to Holland and then to the New World. So stay with us. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Crosstalk. Back to Genesis with Dr. John Morris, Noah's Ark Explorer from the Institute for Creation Research. Dr. Morris, where did Noah build the ark? Chris, we simply don't know where Noah lived nor where he built his boat. This is because the flood of Noah's day totally restructured the surface of the earth. There are no geographical remnants of that pre-flood world. Everything about that world is totally gone. Now, it is true that two of the four rivers named before the flood are the same names as today's rivers. But I suspect that Noah named these rivers like he did because they reminded him of the previous rivers. They couldn't have been the same because beneath these rivers are tens of thousands of feet of flood-deposited strata. They simply didn't exist before the flood. At least that's how I see it from a back-to-Genesis perspective. To learn more about creation, get our free DVD called That's a Fact. Visit our web store at icr.org store and use the promo code FACT at the checkout when ordering your That's a Fact DVD.
You're listening to Crosstalk on VCY America. Bill Federer is with us today as we take a look at Thanksgiving and the Pilgrim Adventure and saw uh, the uh, the pilgrims here. We've got the wide view of the world. And, uh, Bill, let's go back and focus in on, on the pilgrims, uh, the persecution that was taking place. We know, as you mentioned, uh, spies are sent in that listen to the sermons, persecution. They actually fled to Holland. So to walk us through that. Sure. So one of the other Baptist leaders was Thomas Hellwise. He dies in the Newgate prison. He says, the king is a mortal man and not God. Therefore, he has no power over the mortal soul of his subjects. Men's religion to God is betwixt God and themselves. Uh, The king didn't like that. But the other Baptist founder was John Smith, S-M-Y-T-H. And one of the church members was John Robinson. And then he branches off and starts a church. And they flee to Holland and they flee to Leiden, Holland. And we call them the pilgrims. Hmm. So the pilgrims were actually... Uh, a, a branch of the Baptist faith there. And they're in Holland for 12 years, but Thrain, Spain threatens to attack. Well, we, it was an 80-year war of independence for Holland to break away from Spain. And so these pilgrims originally thought of going to Guyana, South America, because they heard of the perpetual spring, of the weather. But then they re- realized that there was a French Protestant, those Huguenots, that were chased out of France, Catherine de' Medici, some of them tried to settle Florida in 1565, and the Spanish found out about it and butchered 300 of them. And so these pilgrims are like, uh, we don't want to go anywhere close where Spain is. So they decide to go to Jamestown. It was started 14 years earlier. It was a king-run colony, uh, but it was 3,000 miles away from England, and they thought they could do their pilgrim stuff and not be noticed. It was providential. They never made it there. Over 500 of the settlers in Jamestown died of starvation, disease, Indian attacks, and so forth. Uh, Well, so the pilgrims, there's 102 of them. They're in a small four-foot-high deck, between deck. Um, It's stormy. It's a 66-day journey. It's freezing cold. One of them is washed overboard, John Howland, and they fish him back in. Um, They... um, have a main beam crack in the boat, and they have to pry it back in place. And they finally get to the shores of America, and they're 500 miles away from Jamestown. And they try sailing down the coast, almost sink, because it's really shallow off the coast of Cape Cod, and it was a storm. And so the captain goes back to Plymouth Rock and says, everyone off the boat. And they say, we have a problem. Who is going to be in charge of us? The whole world is ruled by kings. And there's no king-appointed person in our little church group here. They do something unique. They give themselves the authority to start a government, and it's called the Mayflower Compact. We, in the presence of God, covenant ourselves together into a civil body politic. This was revolutionary. It was a polarity change in the flow of power on planet Earth. Instead of top-down rule by kings, it's bottom-up rule by we, just us, just this little independent group of us in the middle of this little boat, in, in the womb of that Mayflower is conceived the child of self-government. And, and it says, we covenant ourselves. Who's the we? It's these, these church people. And so you have a church group forming itself into a civil body politic. I know that's sort of strange today because people say, well, churches aren't supposed to be involved in politics. Yeah. The pilgrims were a church group that formed, that formed themselves into a civil body politic. And that became the model for New England. You had pastors, uh, Roger Williams and his church founded Providence, Rhode Island, and the government for Providence, Rhode Island. And you had a pastor, Thomas Hooker, and his church founded Hartford, Connecticut, and the government of Hartford, Connecticut. So New England was this experiment of churches forming governments. Uh, I mean, you couldn't say pastors don't get involved in politics when it's the pastor's sermon that's their constitution. Wow. You couldn't say church members don't get involved in politics, where all there, all there was in these New England cities was the church members. And so um, so we look to the pilgrims as the, the ones pioneering our form of government. And, Bill, just and a then, side, side note here, uh, the, the matter of one man, one woman marriage, that was very important to the pilgrims at the time. Oh, it really was. Uh, and a matter of fact, they got in trouble with the king mm-hmm. because um, – uh, they had their elders performing marriages, and they were not Anglican, and uh, they were just biblical. And they went on the scriptures, and yet the government wanted to persecute them, saying, no, it has to be an Anglican priest that says it. And, uh, but they did. Um, they, they did not like the government mandating their faith. 
So imagine if the government mandates that there could be polygamy and, and or gay marriage, and you want to stick with the Bible. The government will then criminalize you, and that's what they were experiencing. And um, now, one of the other things was they they attempted communism. And if you would like, I can share that real quick. Sure, please do. So they had no money, and so they had to approach investors in England, and they the investors formed the London Company, and they lent them money, and they sort of caught the pilgrims off guard and made them sign it, and they weren't really happy, but they did. And so this London company had bylaws, and the bylaws said that for the first seven years, all profits and benefits that are got by trade, traffic, trucking, working, fishing, or any other means shall remain in ye common stock, and all are to have their meat, drink, and apparel, and all provision out of ye common stock. So everybody's work goes into this pot, and everything comes out of it. William Bradford said they tried it and almost starved to death. He says the failure of that experiment of communal service, which was tried for several years by good and honest men, proves the emptiness of the theory of Plato and other ancients, applauded by some of latter times, that the taking away of private property and possession of it in community would make a state happy and flourishing as if they were wiser than God. For in this instance, community of property was found to breed much confusion and discontent, retard much employment, which would have been to the general benefit. The young men who are most able and fit for service, objected to being forced to spend their time in working for other men's wives and children without any recompense. The strong man or the resourceful man had no more share of food, clothes, etc. than the weak man who was not able to do a quarter what the other could. This was thought injustice. The aged and graver men who were equalized in labor with the humbler and younger ones considered it an indignity and disrespect. As for men's wives, who were obliged to do service for other men, such as cooking, washing their clothes, etc., they considered it a kind of slavery, and many husbands would not brook it or allow it. William Bradford goes on, let none argue that this is due to human failing rather than to this communistic plan of life in itself. I answer that God in his wisdom saw that another plan of life was fitter for them. So they decided to uh, give everyone their own plot of land. This made all hands more industrious. He says, uh, the women now went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them to plant corn, while before they would allege weakness, and to have compelled them would have been thought great oppression. Mm -hmm. So here they switch from company to covenant. Instead of an involuntary system of redistribution, you have your own plot of stuff, you grow it, you're, you're blessed, and then you voluntarily take care of your neighbor. And that's where you have you know, John Winthrop saying, this love among Christians is a real thing. We must make up one another's condition our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together. We shall find the God of Israel is among us. So it's a voluntary taking care of your neighbor, not a government redistribution. Mm -hmm. And one found out that if you don't work, you don't eat. I mean, they had their plot to take care of and to, uh, to be more self-sufficient rather than just taking from the community. Yes, yes. And... Um, now, I don't know if you have time, but the miracle of Squanto is one that... Yeah, I really want you to introduce us both to Samoset and Squanto, and, and who are these individuals, and what role did they play? So the Pilgrims land November of 1620, and half of them died the first winter. And the next spring, they would not have survived. And out of the woods comes an Indian speaking to them in broken English named Samoset, and he tells them of another Indian who speaks English better than himself. And William Bradford says that uh, a few days later came Squanto, a native of this place who had been in England. And lo and behold, um, the pilgrims were religious, but there were other people who were not, and they were actually pirates. And Spain had a monopoly on the New World for a century, and they had Spanish gold from Mexico, Aztec gold, Inca, Peru, and they would ship the gold from Portobello, Panama to Havana, Cuba, and then ship it over to Spain. And you had French pirates like um, uh, Leclerc, who was nicknamed Pegleg. Um, you had Dutch pirates. You had English pirates. And some of these pirates, in addition to raiding for gold, they would sail up the coast of North America, lure unsuspecting Indians onto their boat, lock them below deck, sail to Spain, sell them into slavery, and make a buck. 
Well, that's what happened to Squanto. And the story is he was purchased by some monks who gave him his freedom. He hitchhikes his way across Europe, gets to England, and he's there a dozen years. Learns the English language. He's working different jobs. And then he finds a fishing interest in, to take him to Newfoundland. And then finally in 1619, he's dropped off at Plymouth Rock, only to find his entire tribe had died. My. Uh, William Bradford writes that three years earlier, a French ship had shipwrecked right there at Cape Cod. Sailors got ashore. Indians never left watching them and dogging them, killing them, and making sport with them worse than slaves. Evidently, one of them must have had an illness. The Indian tribe was wiped out. So sort of in an interesting sense, had Squanto not been kidnapped, he most certainly would have died in that plague because the entire tribe died. And so Squanto's living with the Wampanoags, a nearby tribe. And you can just picture the spring of 1621. Uh, Samoset goes into the teepee and Squanto is like depressed. And he says, hey, Squant, you wouldn't believe it. There's a bunch of people from England wanting to start a settlement on your old stomping ground. And so Squanto just walks into the their, their little, you know, village and, uh, you know, probably wearing a loincloth and goes up to him and he says, um, oh, you guys from... London, yeah, I used to live there. <laughs> you know, oh, down on Wharf Street and the St. Paul's Chapel and all this kind of stuff. And and then he says, oh, here, I, I grew up here. I know this place like the back of my hand. He goes, over the hill, there's a spring. And William Bradford says that he was a special instrument sent of God for their good beyond their expectation. He taught them how to catch fish. He said, well, we've tried that. He goes, no, these are salmon. They spawn. You know, looking at the moon, he says, in a couple of weeks, this river will be packed. And then he teaches them how to plant corn they tried it we said no 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 you got to dig a hole put a fish in there then your kernel of corn then cover it with mud and the fish will decompose fertilize it and you'll have a nice stalk and then he taught them how to take the corn and put it in a pot and shake it over a fire and make popcorn hmm. and he taught them how to go down to the riverbank and, and squeegee in the mud and catch eels and clams and then catch lobster and then beaver skins William Bradford says, neither was there a man among them who had ever seen a beaver skin until instructed by Squanto. And it took 40 years worth of beaver skins to pay off that debt for that boat ride. But most importantly, he was their interpreter with the other Indian tribes. And so they had a good relationship that lasted over 50 years. And so the first Thanksgiving, you had um, about 51 pilgrims because half had died. 90 Indians show up. So the first Thanksgiving, there were twice as many Indians as there were pilgrims. And the Indians brought their deer, their turkey. Uh, it went on for a day. At the end of the day, the Indians rolled up in their fur uh, blankets and went to sleep. And the next day, they're still there. So it goes on a second day. And they're doing foot races and arm wrestling and trying to communicate and everything. And, and then the end of that day, they roll up in their blankets. And the next day, they're still there. So it goes on a third day. Tell you what, Bill, we're going to have to break in right here. Uh, Bill Federer with us today. Uh, Thanksgiving and the Pilgrim Adventure, our topic here today on Crosstalk. I trust you are learning things you never knew about uh, this, uh, what brought about Thanksgiving, and uh, certainly the encounter here between uh, the Pilgrims and Squanto, and indeed God's providence on Squanto for such a time as this. We'll be back in one minute here on Crosstalk. Part of the Thief in the Night series, here is a clip from A Distant Thunder. Your right hand, please. That trick, young woman, is used in here 50 times a day. Now, if you want your child cared for, you must have your ID. I can't take the mark. <laughs> My baby is dying. The Thief in the Night four-part Prophecy DVD set is available from VCY America as our way of saying thank you for your donation of $25 or more. The set includes A Thief in the Night, A Distant Thunder, Image of the Beast, and Prodigal Planet. Call VCY America at 1-800-729-9829. 1-800-729-9829 or order online at vcyamerica.org.
You're listening to Crosstalk on VCY America. Bill Federer with us today discussing Thanksgiving and the Pilgrim Adventure and uh, friends just learning how God's hand was on Squanto even as he was taken to uh, England under circumstances uh, certainly did not seem favorable at the time, but how he saw through the end all things do work together for good, how God preserved him and how he had his hand then upon coming in aid to the pilgrims, uh, teaching them how to fish, how to plant corn, how to, uh, you know, capture eels and clams and and to trap beavers, and served as an interpreter in that regard. Bill was just telling us about uh, that first time of coming together, 51 pilgrims, 90 Indians, and not only feasting, but also having various uh, games, that what, foot games and so forth, and, and uh, not just one day, not just two days, but Bill, it even went into a third day. Well, it did, and um, I did want to mention that I tell these stories in a book called The Treacherous World of the 16th Century and How the Pilgrims Escaped It. And um, uh, so, the, and, and that's, the, available, that's available at AmericanMinute.com, correct? Yes, yes, or okay. if, if they want to go through BCY, we can work it out there, too. But it's called The Treacherous World of the 16th Century and How the Pilgrims Escaped It. And one of the treacherous things was Muslim pirates. And so in 1625, the pilgrims had saved up 800 pounds of beaver skins, and they were sending it back to those investors in England that had formed the London Company, and they were wanting to trade it to get more supplies to bring back to their little colony. And William Bradford writes in his History of the Plymouth Settlement, he says the investors, also called adventurers, sent over to fishing ships, the pinnace was ordered to be filled with core fish to bring home to England, and the uh, smaller ship was ordered to be filled full of 800 pounds of beaver and he's, beaver skins. And he says, so they went joyfully home together, and they had such fine weather that they didn't cast off the smaller ship that they were pulling behind until they were well within the English Channel, almost within sight of Plymouth. But even there, she was unhappily taken by a Turkish man of war and carried off to solid Morocco, where the captain and crew were made slaves. Thus, all their hopes were dashed, and the joyful news they meant to carry home was turned into heavy tidings. And the friendly adventurers, the investors, were so reduced by their losses last year and now by the ship taken by the Turks, all trade was dead. We're talking. Can you imagine these pilgrims working really hard, putting everything on the boat, saying goodbye, and then waiting, waiting. Oh, I can't wait to get all that stuff we need. And then the boat comes back empty, saying, "Sorry, Muslim pirates took it all." Um, and that sultan, by the way, in Morocco, uh, Muslea's Mall, he captured an estimated twenty-five thousand Europeans. Uh, there, he had like one thousand. Uh, he had like five hundred wives and one thousand forty-two children, which was supposedly some record for having kid children. And um, they built him a palace at Mekinez. And uh, so he was so brutal. Uh, one time they brought him up, uh, captured stuff from a Portuguese ship, and there was a jeweled um, knife, a hatchet. And he turns and tries it out on one of his African slaves and just hacks it to death just to see how good the hatchet works. I mean, Malaya's mall was cruel. and uh, But these Muslim pirates captured over a 1,000 Englishmen in 1625. They raided the coast of England and the different islands, and they even captured an entire Irish village, the stolen village of Baltimore, Ireland. I came up at nighttime, surprised them, rounded up the whole town, put them on the ship, sent them to Morocco. And, um, and so this was the time period that the pilgrims were living in. Wow, it's amazing, Bill, to hear all that transpired. Um... Did this become an annual event with the Indians, or how how did what we know as Thanksgiving today become an annual event? Um, well, it's interesting. When the pilgrims had fled to Holland, they were in the city called Leiden. It was a university city, and there was even a rabbi that taught at the university. So the Jews were uh, chased out of Spain. You had uh, the Muslims occupied Spain for 700 years. And finally, Ferdinand and Isabella drive the Muslims out, and they're the ones that send Christopher Columbus on his boat ride. But the thought was that some of the Muslims may be pretending to be Jews, 
And so the king of Spain decides to force all the Jews to convert or leave. And some of them flee to Portugal, and then some of them flee to Holland, and they settle in Leiden, Holland, and the pilgrims must have known about them, and because and William Brewster, one of the pilgrims, taught at uh, Leiden. And so the, pilgr- the uh, Jews uh, had an annual harvest festival called the Feast of Tabernacles, right, the end of the harvest season, and, um, and so the pilgrims would have become familiar with that. And they identified with this Hebrew Republic, this period of the Jews before King Saul, and so they would write things like, the uh, Jews, you know, Israelites left the Pharaoh, we left the King of England, they crossed the Red Sea, we crossed the English Channel, <clears throat> you know, they got their promised land, we're looking for ours. And so that's why they taught Hebrew at Yale and Harvard. They identified with the Jews for the Hebrew Republic. And so um, so the thought is that maybe that's where they got their idea. The attitude of the colonists was a, a living relationship with God. In other words, when things were bad, you would have days of prayer. When things were real bad, you would have days of fasting and prayer. And when things turned around, you would have days of Thanksgiving. There was even a case where they had a famine and they had a day of fasting and ships come in the harbor filled full of supplies. And they said, cancel the day of fasting. We're having a day of Thanksgiving. Hmm. Right? And so it was this idea that even during the revolution, uh, Ben Franklin said, um, those of us who were engaged in the contest with Great Britain observed frequent instances of divine interposition in our behalf. So they believed that God was real. You could pray and he would intervene. Um, one of the interesting things, and they had these annual days. For example, Connecticut had an annual day of fasting, and it was on Good Friday. And other colonies had annual days. You know, New Hampshire but it was the governor that would pick the particular day. Um, but one other story that it's worth putting in is the uh, Squanto was the interpreter between the pilgrims and the Indian chief Massasoit and of the Wampanoags. And Massasoit falls ill. And so the pilgrim, Edward Winslow, knows a little medicine. And so he offers, and he goes, and he doctors up Chief Massasoit, and he recovers. Uh, the fine print, though, is if you doctor a chief and the chief dies, you die. Mm. <laughs> wow. So it's a little more serious than just go, oh, I want to check on him. No, once you go in that teepee, if he dies, you die. Um, but luckily, um, you know, providentially, Chief Massasoit lived, and that was the uh, beginning of an over 50-year peace that the the pilgrims and the Indians had. And it wasn't until uh, a couple chiefs later and a couple leaders of the Puritans later where you had uh, King Philip's war, um, their chief Philip's war. But um, that first 50 years was, was peaceful uh, between the, the pilgrims and the, the Indians. Mm-hmm. But... Um, Bill Federer with us here today, Thanksgiving and the Pilgrim Adventure, and we see certainly the providence of God through all of this, Bill, and uh, I'd like you to, to bring us to the point in which we actually have a National Day of Thanksgiving. Yeah, so you had, uh, I put together a book called Prayers and Presidents, and I read through uh, the, all of the Continental Congress. They, they would have days of prayer during the Revolutionary War. They would have days of fasting and prayer. The same Continental Congress that did the Declaration of Independence, two months earlier, you unanimously had a day of fasting and prayer in the name of Jesus. And, um, and then you had the victory at Saratoga in, September, in um, 1777. That's where the Americans capture 6,000 British troops. That would be a big deal today if some army somewhere captured 6,000 of the other country. And so the Continental Congress had the first day, National Day of Thanksgiving, after the Declaration had been signed. And um, and it was through Jesus Christ. They mentioned Jesus Christ right mm-hmm. in there. And then, you know, you have another one after capturing or discovering Benedict Arnold's betrayal, and they had another day of Thanksgiving. And the Battle of Yorktown, a day of Thanksgiving, and 
then when the Constitution and Bill of Rights were finished and George Washington is sworn in as the first president, he has a day of Thanksgiving thanking God for the constitutions of government recently established. So it's obvious the Constitution didn't outlaw God Mm -hmm. because it's passed. The first week after it's passed, uh, you have George Washington having a day of Thanksgiving thanking God for the Constitution. Then there's a Whiskey Rebellion, and then after that, there's another day of Thanksgiving. Uh, You have the second president, John Adams, a threatened war with France. He has a day of fasting and prayer. A third president, Jefferson, and he didn't issue any when he was president, but when he was governor of Virginia, he had days of prayer. As president, though, Jefferson did have the federal government make treaties with the Indians that supported missionaries and supported churches. And Jefferson was trying to figure out how to have peace with the Indians. And so he went through the Bible and pulled out all the verses he could find on ethics, forgiving and turning the other cheek and so forth. His attitude was if if you gave him the whole Bible, they'd get to the Moses and Joshua wiping out people and in the, in the, in the Canaanites and, and you might have more trouble. Um, and so he just went through and they later uh, called it, uh, he wrote in, in, in his own handwriting, he says, for use amongst the Indians so that they would not be encumbered with doctrine beyond their ability to comprehend. Hmm. But um, he didn't intend it as a book to cut out, you know, things. He intended it as a book of, of ethics. That's the third president. Fourth president is James Madison. He has a day of prayer during the War of 1812 and a day of fasting and a day of Thanksgiving. Um, Monroe is the fifth, John Quincy Adams the sixth. And then they all had Zachary Taylor had a day of fasting and prayer in 1849 when there was a cholera epidemic and 150,000 Americans died of cholera. And it was to be observed at the first week in August. 1849, by the end of the month, the death rates drop off. Uh, James Buchanan had a day of fasting. Lincoln had two days of fasting during the Civil War. But it was Lincoln that made the day of Thanksgiving an annual event. Hmm. And the, the last Thursday in November. So every president from Lincoln until now has had a day of Thanksgiving. And it's always been uh, a Christian-based The even just referring to God as Father, that's a, a Christian thing, right? Yeah. Muslims do, do not call God Allah Father. Uh, and, you know, Hinduism, there's 360 million gods, and so you pick which one you want to call Father, I don't know. Um, atheism, there is no God, so you couldn't call him Father. Um, there's a couple verses in the Old Testament referring to God as Father, but it was Jesus that said, when you pray, pray our Father. Mm-hmm. So, and so even when they make little innocuous prayers, and they say, oh, you know, pray to God the Father. That's a Christian concept. and um, Very interesting. So, we got to take a break here, and uh, friends, uh, let's open our phone lines. If you have a question you'd like to ask of Bill, here in the final segment, our number 800-733-9829. That's 800-733-9829. We're keeping our comments pertinent here to Thanksgiving, the Pilgrim Adventure, that first Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving a holiday as we know it. We'll be back in just one minute. You're listening to Crosstalk. For the Worldview Report, I'm Brandon House. Society is collapsing morally, and as society collapses morally, guess what? We have leaders that don't fulfill the moral purpose of government. After all, where do our leaders come from? From the same population. And indeed, Romans 13 says, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword in vain. What's going on here? Rulers are to be ministers of righteousness. What's happened? Today we have people coming from our culture that are, as of the population, not moral people upholding the purpose of government. So why is crime spiking? Because they're not the moral leaders to fight back. They let them out on bail. They give them justification, and crime is rampant, the breakdown of government.
This is Crosstalk on VCY America. Bill Federer with us today, Thanksgiving and the Pilgrim Adventure. You'll find his resources on his website, AmericanMinute.com, AmericanMinute.com. Uh, let's go to uh, June calling in from Washington. Hi, June, you're on the air. Yes, good afternoon. Uh, a question for Bill. I wondered if you've heard of John Lathrop, Reverend John Lathrop. Uh, yes, yes. He uh, founded the Massachusetts town of Barnstable, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Um, and he was from Laythorpe, England. That was my husband's family from way back. My oh my. Wow, you have a great heritage. Great. Yes. And we've had so many missionaries and, and pastors from the Lathrop family. June, thank oh, you so tremendous. much. Thank you for the call here today. Uh, we've got uh, Carrie next, Racine, Wisconsin. Hi, Carrie. You're on the air. Thank you, Jim. I have a question for Bill. I'm wondering if in, I, I really appreciate all of the research that he's done in the declarations of like days of, of fasting and Thanksgiving and so forth. But has he come across or Bill, have you come across anything where any of our officials have declared a day of prayer to anyone other than the Christian God, or a day of honoring anyone of the Christian other than the Christian God? And if so, what's the earliest instance of it? Great. Thank you, Kerry. Yeah, it would be Obama. And he said, well, we got to celebrate Diwali and other things. Um, you know, you did have Jimmy Carter was the first one to celebrate uh, Hanukkah, uh, and he lit the menorah, uh, you know, during the the winter season. That was Jimmy Carter. That was a new thing. Um, and then uh, it was George W. Bush who was the first one to celebrate Hanukkah in the White House. And then right after that, George W. Bush was the first one to celebrate Ramadan in the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, even in FDR, uh, FDR passed out Gideon's New Testaments and Book of Psalms to all the soldiers in World War II. He wrote the foreword. As commander-in-chief, I take pleasure in commending the reading of the Bible to all who serve in the armed forces. And FDR said, we guard against the forces of anti-Christian aggression. He says, preservation of these rights is vital to the future of Christian civilization. Very similar to statements made by Winston Churchill. And um, so in 1965, 93% of the country identified as Christian. 93%, 69% Protestant, 24% Catholic. And then there were 3% Jewish. But uh, it's gone down since then. Today, only 65% identify as Christian. Hmm. So we've gone down from 93 to 65. 65%, though, is still a majority. If, uh, if those 65% got involved, uh, they could determine mm-hmm. the fate of the country. Unfortunately, there's been this teaching that's, that came in the 1700s when you had these German immigrants that um, if you really become Christian, you should no longer do worldly things like go to bars and brothels and loot theater and get involved in worldly government. And so that was the beginning of this idea that it's holy not to be involved. The ultimate of this was the Amish, those German immigrants. Uh, they were like, oh, we're not even going to vote, you know. But it was this idea that I'm going to be holy, I'm going to be set apart from the world, and, and you're more focused on yourself than on what you're leaving to your children. Prior to the 1700s, it was the church that formed the government. It was the congregational church model of everybody being involved in church that became the community model there in New England. Everybody's going to be involved. They had one building in each town called the Meeting House. That's where the pastor would teach the Bible, and that's where they would do their city business. The word synagogue means meeting house. That's where the rabbi would teach the law, and that's where they would gather to do their city business. I mean, why build a separate building just to talk about a different topic? Mm-hmm. And so when the revolution started, that's when the British sent over a military governor, Thomas Gage, and he outlawed meeting houses. We don't need the people meeting. You, you just do what the government mandates. Yeah. And so it's top down versus bottom up. Bill, we, we're just less than three minutes, and I, I just wanted to uh, have you bring this full circle to uh, just mention a few of the proclamations that have come from presidents as it pertains to Thanksgiving. Again, we have just less than three minutes here. Uh, yes. Uh, I, so you had um, John Paul Jones. Uh, he captures the British ship uh, Serapis, and uh, right after that is Governor Thomas Jefferson has a de- declaration of Thanksgiving. November 11, 1779, Jefferson says, Congress has sought proper to recommend uh, a day of public 
in solemn thanksgiving to Almighty God for our victory. And then he says um, that uh, pour out his Holy Spirit on ministers of the gospel, that he would bless and prosper uh, the spread of the light of Christian knowledge through the remotest corners of the earth, and a day of, of thanksgiving and prayer to Almighty God, signed Thomas Jefferson as the governor. That's an interesting one. And um, But uh, in the book, Prayers and Presidents, I put all the different ones. Uh, you know, you have um, George Washington in 1794, National Day of Thanksgiving, um, reliance on the gracious providence who so signally displays his goodness towards this country. Um, you have, um, you know, James Madison, uh, who says, um, I now recommend a day in which the people of every religious denomination may in their solemn assemblies unite their hearts and voices in a free will offering to their heavenly benefactor mm. of their homage of thanksgiving and songs of praise, signed James Madison. Very interesting. Uh, let's uh, pick up another call. Fred in Milwaukee, you're on the air. Yes, I was wondering if uh, Bill knows um, about Roosevelt. Uh, his family is supposed to be from Amsterdam and Holland, and they founded something to do with New York, New Amsterdam, which was changing in New York, but that his name was originally Rosenfeld, and they were Jewish. I wondered if he knew about that, if that was true or not. Um, I know that uh, Franklin Roosevelt himself says that his founder came over in the you know, ancestor came over in the 1600s and was named Roosevelt, uh, which is a, a Dutch name, and that he was very proud of that Dutch heritage. Uh, the Dutch did settle New Amsterdam, which became New York, and the oldest church in New York um, was the, the St. Nicholas Church, because uh, they loved the Christmas traditions, and then it turned into the Marble Collegiate Church, and uh, it did for a while have the largest Protestant cathedral in North America. And it was downtown on Fifth Street, but then I think it was Sinclair Oil uh, bought the the building and tore it down to build an oil building, and the congregation moved out a ways and called itself the Marble Collegiate Church. And wow. many Norman Vincent Peale was the pastor, and even Donald Trump went there, right? So um, we're going to have to leave it all there. And uh, Bill, thanks for being with us uh, today, talking about Thanksgiving and the Pilgrim Adventure. Thank you. And AmericanMinute.com if people want the, the book, The Treacherous World of the 16th Century and How the Pilgrims Escaped It. Great. Again, The Treacherous World of the 16th Century, AmericanMinute.com. And a happy Thanksgiving to you, Bill. Happy Thanksgiving to you, Jim, and all the listeners. And God bless you, folks. May you have a blessed day. You've been listening to Crosstalk via satellite and the Internet from BCY America. Views expressed may or may not be those of this station. For a CD of today's program, send a donation of $6 or more to VCY Tape Ministry, 3434 West Kilbourne Avenue, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 53208. Or download by RSS or podcast from CrosstalkAmerica.com. And join us again for Crosstalk. Crosstalk.